and welcome to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca, and today I have a special treat for you. We're going to be talking about the Crusades. What do you know about the Crusades? I'm surprised by how many people are, are not aware of what, really what the Crusades are. They kind of have this general idea that the Crusades were when the Christians went and just started killing all these innocent Muslims for no reason. And that's kind of generally the ever, all anybody really knows about them. So today we're going to be talking about the Crusades. But before we jump in, let me remind you to like, subscribe, hit the bell notification, and comment down below. All those different little things that uh, YouTube tells you to do and to say, uh, go do those things. I'd be very grateful. And share this video with someone that you think would be interested in learning more about the Crusades. We're going to give a wide overview of the Crusades, about what it was, what was it about. Maybe we'll do some a little bit of myth-busting and give you some historical context for the situation. But let me just tell you. I am not an expert on the Crusades by any stretch of the imagination. I really only know a lot of the apologetic responses. I actually have the, the two books that I really have everything I know about, which is uh, Converts and Kingdoms by Diane Moskar and then Stephen Weidenkopf's The Glory of the Crusades are the two books that I've read on the Crusades. So not that really in-depth, to be honest. But joining me in the studio is uh, my buddy Andrew. He went to Patrick Henry College in Perceville, Virginia, He's got his BA in history. And more importantly, which what really qualifies him to be here is that he's a, he's a friend of mine. So good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, Adrian. Uh, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, praise be to God. I'm glad you're here. And uh, your last name, I always say it wrong, and it's Almagar? It's Almaguer. Almaguer. So it's Spanish. Almaguer. Okay. Yes. I don't know why I can never say your name right. It's just like... And you're perpetually. Mexican, so... You know. I know. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> we'll I'm, work on that. I know. I know. It's so bad. I'm, my uh, my Espanol is muy bado. So there you go, folks. There you go. Uh, but before we get started, Andrew, uh, tell me about yourself and uh, how did you end up getting interested in the topic of the Crusades to begin with? Sure. So I've, I've always been really interested in history. Uh, when I was young, I... Uh, I really was taken with, you know, knights and castles and all that. I think all of us go through something of a phase like that at some point, right? And um, I remember uh, kind of a formative experience for me is when I, I actually had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land uh, when I was very young. I was, I think I'd just gotten out of fifth grade, right? Um, and uh, so I got to see all these places, really, really fantastic opportunity. And uh, something that came up in... Uh, you know, in some of the, the historical sites that we that we visited, was there was mention of the Crusaders, right? And I thought, what are the Crusaders? What's that? Um, and uh, I remember reading somewhere, oh, well, they they were Christian warriors. Someone said that. I thought, oh, that's a that's an interesting concept. I I, I find that uh, pretty inspiring, actually. So I asked, you know, our, our tour leader about it, uh, and he said, well, they weren't exactly Christian warriors because they they kind of just went around and killed people in the name of, of Christ. And I thought, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so for a while, I was I was very cynical about the whole thing. Any anytime someone mentioned the Crusades, I said, oh, they weren't really Christians. They you know they just killed people in the name of of Christ, and um, you know they gave us a bad name. That don't don't you know um, we don't approve of them, right? <laughs> um, but. Uh, I, you know, I thought that for a while, but then I think it was during high school. Uh, I was just getting more into, more into history, more wanting to um, to know about the history of, uh, you know, my heritage, where I came from, right? Uh, sort of Spanish history and uh, and just European history in general. 
And uh, I was very interested in historical European martial arts, all that kind of stuff. Uh, very nerdy. But anyway, um, uh, I remember reading uh, an article. I, I don't remember where it was from, but it was basically a myth busting about the Crusades. Everything that you've been told about the Crusades is wrong. Uh, and, uh, and here's why. And I found, uh, yeah, this is very compelling. Basically, it was the, the popular conception of the Crusades is an interception of kind of the leftist progressive agenda. Hmm. And then also, um, to an extent, uh, some, some uh, Muslim sources, but, but very recent Muslim sources, uh, not stuff that, that's ancient or, or comes from that time period. We can get into that a little bit later, what contributes uh, to the popular conception of the Crusades. But of course, uh, leftists are always championing Muslims as, oh, well, it's a religion of peace, and, and right. they're, they're the good religion, right? right? And Christians are the bad religion. Uh, so there's this natural tendency... Um, to want to say crusades bad because they were fighting the good Muslims and, and this and that. And uh, I thought I got much more interested in the subject and uh, I came to the realization that not only were the crusades uh, justified, uh, but that they were generally a very good thing that actually saved European and Western civilization in general, uh, if we're looking at it as the broader movement. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll get into some of that. Awesome. I don't want to get ahead of yeah, myself yeah, here. No, that's great. That's mm. great. Praise be to God. It's mm. a good little kind of uh, context. And mm. you know, I've noticed that about a lot of people. A lot of people really didn't know much about the Crusades, but they hear about the Crusades initially, especially young men. When they hear about it, they there's like this kind of bubbling in the soul when you're like, wow, that is, sounds awesome. Mm. And then they pour cold water on on that, and they're like, no, 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 it's not actually awesome. They're like, oh, yeah. okay, I. I guess I, I guess it wasn't actually a good thing, no. and then you know where the red pill moment comes, and you realize, wow, no, actually the Crusades <laughs> were actually awesome. Mm -hmm. So let's start from the beginning. The Crusades. When did they first happen? So first, let's start with what yeah. is a crusade? What do we mean when we say crusade? Right. So a crusade uh, can broadly be defined as uh, as a military expedition that was sanctioned by the church, usually almost always called by the pope. And it was actually indulgenced by the church, which means that if you participated, you got usually a plenary indulgence um, for the purpose of defending and in some in some cases expanding Christendom. Uh, so uh, yeah, the the first crusade started in the late 11th century in 1095. That's when Pope Urban II preached the first crusade at the Council of Clermont. Uh, there is a little bit leading up to that, though, in, in terms of um, a gradual recognition of and understanding by the church that wars could not just could could be more than just just they could actually be holy wars mm -hmm. um and we see some of that with uh the, the pope's blessing the normans in in trying to retake sicily which had been conquered by the muslims in blessing the various uh, attempts of the the spanish christians to retake spain which had also been conquered by the muslims and various various other military expeditions but the the first crusade is really the first um the first full-blown crusade in that it it fits all the the criteria of what with which we associate crusades now in history. So what, what is is there like a official category that says okay this is what makes something a crusade versus not a crusade? Yeah, yeah. So I mean the main thing is that it is sanctioned by the church, usually called by a pope and that there is an indulgence. There's a, okay. an indulgence involved. So if it meets yeah. those things then it is technically a crusade. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And so, Blessed Urban the uh, Second, which I guess uh, at the time just Urban the Second, he. So, what what was the impetus for him calling this crusade, and what kind of was, 
if I don't know if you know the answer to this, what was kind of the reaction of people at the time of because I guess it would have been unprecedented at the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, to to an extent, um, it it was unprecedented. It was the first crusade, and it's called that for a reason. Um, but like I said, there was there was some lead up to this. I guess just a bit of a historical context. Um, I mean, from the beginning, Islam uh, was. I mean, it's always really been a militant religion. It expands through conquest. Muhammad himself was a warlord. He conquered most of the Iberian, or not Iberian, Arabian Peninsula. Um, and then his successors just continued on from there. Uh, so uh, by by the time of his death, he'd, he'd led his armies to conquer the Arabian Peninsula. And this this continued um, until up into the 11th century, when, which is when the first crusade uh, was called, to the extent that about two-thirds of the Christian world had actually been conquered by armies of Islam. Oh, wow. Yeah. Two-thirds? So about, yeah, about wow, two-thirds. I didn't know that. As far as land goes. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this includes Mesopotamia, Syria, you know, Palestine, what we as Christians would call the Holy Land, Egypt, pretty much all of North Africa, all the way into Spain. After they conquered Spain, uh, this was in the 8th century, they actually were invading France. And you you may know this. They were stopped by uh, an army of the Franks under Charles Martel. And uh, if you if you look on a map uh, where Tours is, it's not in the south of France. It's it's pretty far north. And it's not right on the coast either. It's, it's fairly far inland. So they'd gotten pretty far, pretty far into France. And they were only stopped at that one battle. So... Yeah, we're uh, really bad in America as Americans mm-hmm. of uh, trying to understand where things are in Europe. I'm Whenever sure, we talk yeah. about things, we're like, yeah. okay, yeah, it was happening in Taurus, France. We're like, uh, is that next to Paris? <laughs> That's pretty much It's actually all not super far from Paris, mm-hmm. uh, which Paris isn't in the south of France either. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty far up there. So uh, the point is, is that uh, the Muslims were really trying to conquer Basically, everything in their path. They didn't just fight Christians, of course. They expanded eastward. They went all the way to India, and they're they're fighting um, all kinds of people over there, um, Zoroastrians, pagans, you you name it. Uh, they're they're just trying to conquer everything, really. But uh, the Christians were definitely in their way uh, in in terms of of trying to conquer all of the world that they knew of at that time. So that that's kind of the context. Uh, that's that's something really important to remember when we talk about the Crusades because. Yes, the Crusades were, in a, in a sense, an offensive, right? Mm-hmm. Christians were going from largely from Europe and uh, to the Holy Land to try and re- retake it. But that's that's a key uh, term there, retake, right? Mm. Because it previously had been Christian land. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't this aggressive, un- unprovoked sort of uh, right. uh, movement. It was, if, if anything, it was a counterattack, a counteroffensive. Uh, so one might say that uh, the... The Mohammedans were revolutionaries and the Catholics were the counter-revolutionaries, one you, might say. I suppose you could say that. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> you could say that. The one other thing that I find interesting is that there was many, many saints, probably most famously Bernard of Clairvaux, who preached the Crusades on behalf of Urban II. And they uh, would go around preaching about that men should join in in the Crusades. And many saints who even went on the Crusades to preach and minister to the Crusaders mm-hmm. Uh, along with them on the battlefield. It's very amazing to think about. Yeah, so um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux in particular, so he was he lived during the time of the Second Crusade, uh, not not the First Crusade. Mm-hmm. So this would have been called by Pope Eugenius III, but oh, he was okay. he was instrumental in getting the Second Crusade going. Right? I see, I see. So he, he, went, he went everywhere and, and preached very enthusiastically this crusade, 
and uh, got a lot of people to sign up, including uh, the kings of, of France and of Germany. So this was this uh, the first crusade didn't have any kings on it. It was just uh, counts and, and lords um, and dukes. Really? Very important. Yeah, okay. very important noblemen, but not any kings of Europe. The second crusade, they thought, oh, this is going to work out because now we've got the king of France. We've got the... Um, was it the Holy Roman? No, it was King Conrad III of Germany. Uh, we've got these kings involved, and so this is going to go well. It actually didn't end up going that well. Um, <laughs> and it was it was very, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a bit scandalous. And uh, St. Bernard was very, uh, he was devastated by this because he had been so enthusiastic in preaching it. Fortunately, of course, you know, his reputation for being a holy man survived, and he is a saint venerated by the church today. But this is, uh, this is something of a pattern that uh, seems to me, uh, that we can learn from the saints, actually, mm-hmm. is that the saints didn't always meet with a lot of worldly success, uh, even when they thought, okay, God wants me to do this thing. Um, and maybe I, I think that God did want him to do that, but maybe not for the reasons that he thought, because not necessarily because it's it's destined for great success in this world. Um, you actually, I, I was going to cover this later, but I kind of want to talk about okay, it now, since we're up. talking about the saints. St. Francis of Assisi. Right, he um, preached the Fifth Crusade, or... so. He wasn't really involved in getting the Fifth Crusade going. Okay. What he did is during the Fifth Crusade, he went to Egypt, which is where the fighting was happening. Mm. And his goal was to either convert Al-Kamil, who was the, the, the sultan of Egypt, to either convert him and therefore end the crusade because uh, he was in control of Egypt and also the Holy Land. So if he became a Christian, then Jerusalem would be under Christian control again. Uh, so either convert him or die as a martyr. Uh, and, and it's a win-win for him either way because he's a saint, and yeah. that's that's what saints want. Um, so unfortunately, he didn't achieve either of those goals. Uh, he basically preached very, uh, very forcefully uh, the Christian faith and denounced Mohammedanism in not the most polite terms, but you, you know, <laughs> not not inaccurately. Right? Um, he he wasn't pulling any punches. Let's just say that. And then when he was done, Al Kamil kind of just sits there and says. I like this guy. He's got guts. <laughs> and that was about it. He, he lets him go unharmed and he doesn't accomplish either, which again, uh, sort of plays to the, that pattern uh, that, I, that I mentioned is that he didn't achieve either of his aims, but I think that that was uh, God's will for him to, to accept that failure and, and to grow in humility, right? And I'm sure he saw it that way too. You know, I have to do more research on this topic, mm-hmm. but I remember being told that the... Um, the sultan wanted to convert, but he was in fear of the imams that mm. they would have murdered him, and so he ended up not converting. And I believe I've read somewhere, this may not be true, so take it with a grain of salt, sure. but I, I remember reading somewhere that he converted, the, the sultan ended up converting later in his life towards, towards his deathbed because he wanted to convert at the time, hmm. but he did not convert out of fear of the imams, and uh, he ended up letting him go, like you said, because he was like, oh, wow, this guy is pretty gutsy and let him free uh, mm. but he threw in the wanted to pass through fire and the he wanted to challenge the imams he's like let's both walk through fire and see who survives and they were like uh i'll pass on that one yeah <laughs> uh, but uh, the it's very interesting that uh, it could be a whole research done into uh, that time period of just francis and what was going on there yeah i actually hadn't heard about uh heard that that story at all um I'm definitely going to go look into that because yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. If you find anything substantial, let me know. Because I, I mm-hmm. my problem is I hear a lot of stories and then I don't even remember like where I've heard them from. Right. And I just like regurgitate them and I'm like, 
I don't know if this is true, but I, <laughs> I've definitely heard this before. I'm not making it up, but someone might have. Spreading <laughs> so, misinformation. Exactly. Spreading misinformation <laughs> since uh, 1998. Uh, partially but, false. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fact check, uh, partially true. So there you oh, go. But go So it. let's go backwards, back to the beginning, sure. and say, okay, we're, we're at the First Crusade. Well, where did they go? Was it successful? Was it not successful? What was good? What was bad? And give me the overview of the First Crusade. Right, right. So uh, like we mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Crusades happened in the context of Muslims conquering basically the Christian world. And um, they, they, like I said, they got through Mesopotamia, Syria, the Holy Land, Egypt, North Africa, Spain. They were going to France. They were defeated in the 8th century by Charles Martel. And so they kind of abandoned that project. Uh, but by the by the 11th century, uh, they are fighting the Eastern Roman, also known as the Byzantine Empire, in Asia Minor. They're trying to take over Asia Minor, which is the same place as Anatolia, modern day Turkey, basically. And uh, they they inflict a crushing defeat on the armies of Emperor Alexius I Comnenus. Uh, and in response to this, he, he realizes I, I can't beat these guys on my own. And it, in fact. He was fighting a, a new group of Muslims. They were called the Seljuk Turks. And uh, we don't actually know a ton about these people, but we know that they were from the, they were nomadic people from the steppes. They were recent converts to Islam, and they were very fierce fighters and very merciless. Um, so they were sweeping through the area, and they were just conquering everything in their, uh, in their way. They defeated uh, the Eastern Romans at the Battle of Manzikert. I believe that was in 1071. And so uh, Emperor Alexius... Uh, he throws up his hands and he says, well, I need help, right? And so he, he calls on the West for help. Um, and, and keep in mind, this is in the context of the the, the great East-West schism, right? Mm, so, that's right. So tensions are, are high between the East and the West. So it really says something that he felt this desperate that he's going to call on the, the Pope, right, <laughs> in the West, the, the Latin Christians who they don't get along very well to come and help him. And, uh, and on the, the Pope's part, he... He uh, answers this call, and so at a, uh, a council at Clermont in France uh, in 1095, he gives this rousing speech, and he basically says, uh, we need to go help our Christian brethren in the East because they're being oppressed uh, by, by these Muslims. And uh, the Seljuk Turks, were, they were particularly brutal. I mean, they were, they were actually fighting the other Muslims in Syria and Palestine as well. They were sweeping through and conquering there, and they were committing a lot of atrocities. It was Some of the, the accounts are really horrific of, of the things that they were doing. Um, so, uh, well, a little bit more context. Jerusalem had been Muslim, had been under the control of the Muslims for quite quite some time. I want to say it was the, the 8th century, um, or maybe even, maybe even the 7th century, when the armies of Muhammad... Uh, Come through there, and uh, not not him. He had he he died by this point. But his right. successors they came through and they conquered Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem was under Muslim control for hundreds of years. However, uh, on and off there was some persecution, but for the most part they still allowed Christians to practice their religion there. They did tax them very heavily, and they also allowed Christian pilgrims to come in and to to visit the holy places. Chief of which is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, mm. which is where our Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross on Calvary, but also the tomb, the, sep- the sepulcher itself, where he was buried, and then, of course, where he rose again from the dead. So this is like the holiest site mm-hmm. in, in all of Christianity. And so going on pilgrimage there, that's a very big deal, being able to. 
the Seljuks, they come through and they, they take Jerusalem and they are very oppressive towards the Christians. They're not letting them come and visit. They're persecuting them. And it's, it's just an awful situation. And so this, this particular event uh, in, in conjunction with the emperor's call for help is what prompts Pope Urban II to give the speech at Claremont. And he says, essentially, you fighting men who have been busy with your, your feuds and fighting each other, Christian brethren, you know, stop that. God is calling you to something higher now. And we need to go help our Christian brethren in the East. And if you do that, that w- this will be a spiritually meritorious act of mercy, a penitential act of mercy. And in fact, I'm going to uh, indulgence this uh, as, as an added incentive. And the response is overwhelming, right? Um, he, he scarcely ended his speech when all the, the men, the fighting men are standing up, the knights and the nobles, and they shout, Deus vult, Deus vult, which is Latin for God wills it. Right, so that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. That's where the meme comes. From. That's where the meme comes from. It yeah. comes from Urban the Second, yeah, the first meme memeologist. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's accurate. Um, but uh, and so in Claremont, I mean, before the day is through, they're running out of red cloth because uh, to go on crusade, they didn't have the term crusade at that point. Mm-hmm. That's a later invention. But going on crusade, it was called taking the cross, and what that meant is you had someone so. You would sew a cross onto your, your clothes, usually a red cross, as a sign that you were taking a solemn vow to go and fight and try and liberate Jerusalem, the holy places, from the Muslims mm. and, and help the, the Christian brethren in the East. So did the, when, did the, when did the idea of the military orders start showing up? Right. So this, uh, the military orders are very interesting. Uh, most people have heard of the Knights Templar. Right. right? They're the most well-known one, very large and, and very successful until they, well, until they weren't. Um, there's the Knights Hospitaller. They were also uh, very important. The Teutonic Knights, they were more the German uh, military order. Uh, all these military orders are founded in the Holy Land by the, the, the Latin Western Christians um, after the First Crusade. So between the First Crusade and the Second Crusade, and really they are uh, they're created as a response to the military conditions in uh, in the area. So just for yeah, just to back up a little bit, the First Crusade, um, they go and the, the Christian armies they go to uh, the Holy Land. They're actually very successful despite a ton of setbacks. And uh, they they recapture Jerusalem and they establish there a couple of entity, political entities. So there's the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the Principality of Antioch, the County of Edessa, and um, and so they're right there on the coast and they're they're pretty small and they're surrounded on all sides by Muslims. So it's a, it's a very precarious position. Uh, and so to defend these territories. Uh, they have to get kind of creative because, you know, there would be volunteers, crusaders who would come from Europe to fulfill their vows and uh, they would stay for a time, but then they would they would go home. Mm, right? right. And so uh, there was a limited the number problem of... like there was in the, the Vendee. Yeah. Where they were they would win, but then they'd go home to take care of their farms and then ultimately they lose because they have no real army. You have to. Yeah. You have to hold on to the territory that you've that you've won. Uh, and so, you know, there was a limited number of people who were able to come. And, and wanted to and were able to stay and set up these these uh, uh, these kingdoms, right? And uh, so the military was very small. The armies were always very small. They were always severely outnumbered by the Muslims. 
And uh, not just that, but also maintaining, uh, it was actually, a big part of it was trying to keep the routes, the pilgrimage routes, safe and open for Christians to come visit the holy places. Because we got Jerusalem back, but if you get mugged and, and murdered on the way, uh, you know, which you were very likely to, given the the lawless condition at the time, uh, it, that's not going to do you a whole lot of good. So these some of these orders sprang up uh, basically just to, to help with that. So the Knights Hospitaller, for example, they ran a hospital, that's where the name comes from, the Hospital of St. John in Jerusalem, and what they did is they ministered to pilgrims who had come there to to visit the holy places, and they were basically they were just a hospital, and it was a really really nice hospital, by the way. Um, they really took their their vow seriously. It was a religious order. They took vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, all that, and their their work of mercy was taking care of these pilgrims. Uh, and at some point, uh, they they kind of realized, well, it, wouldn't it be better to just prevent these pilgrims from getting mugged in the first place. Mm. And uh, and so there was the Knights Templar who had been established by that time, and they were they were a religious military order. So they were um, they, they took the, the vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, like any other religious order, but their work of mercy was basically defending the roads, defending the pilgrims, protecting uh, the realm from from the Muslims. And uh, and so that's why they they wore armor and they they had swords and they fought. Uh, so they were warrior Warrior monks, basically. Technically, they were friars, right? Okay. Uh, and so the hospitalers started doing that as well. And then later on, you have the establishment of a couple of other military orders as well, um, who are all very similarly modeled. But the idea is that you have knights uh, who have come to the Holy Land, and they want to give their life to to this work of the church, right? And so instead of just joining religious order, as as they could, a lot of a lot of knights did do that. Just normal religious orders, uh, they thought. Well, I have a decade and a half minimum of training on how to ride a horse and how to fight and wear armor and 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 be a military man. Uh, why don't I use that in service to the church where there's clearly a need for it? And mm. so that's where these military orders come from. Okay, very good, very mm. good. Uh, so let's go over. I know we kind of. We didn't even finish talking about the First Crusade, but sure. uh, let's conclude the First Crusade real quick. Let's, uh, how did the First Crusade conclude? And let's jump into the Second Crusade. Okay, sure. So uh, the First Crusade, it starts, the um, Council of Clermont is in 1095. It's 1096 before the expedition gets going. Uh, it's led by a couple of men, Duke Godfrey of Bouillon, Count Raymond IV of Toulouse, and Prince Bohemond of Toronto. Of and Toronto. So Toronto. is that where they get the names Toronto, Canada? I'm assuming. I... Well, it's 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 spelled differently. It's T A R A. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's in Italy. Oh, not France. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, completely different. Yeah. So Bowman Bowman of Toronto uh, is a very interesting character. These are all very interesting characters, but well, we'll get into that a bit later. But anyway, what they achieve is they uh, they march east. They meet up with the emperor. Um, they make an agreement with him, and then they, they march east. They take retake Nicaea, which had been conquered by the Seljuk Turks. They retake Antioch, the city of Antioch, which is uh, like the second largest city in the Mediterranean world at this oh. time. It's very big. Uh, the, only big. the only city bigger than it is Constantinople. So retaking this city was a very big deal because of how large it is. Uh, and after they uh, take Antioch, they survive a siege from the Muslims, they break that siege, and then they push on to Jerusalem, and they are successful in capturing Jerusalem. And so that's that's basically how the First Crusade ends. The kingdom of Jerusalem is established along with the other, uh, the Latin states in the in the Near East. 
Okay, very interesting. So the the second crusade, I believe mm-hmm. this is the one that everybody says this is the bad crusade, and or is that the third one? Um, well, I mean, okay, so there are there are some crusades that are successes, some that are not as successful, some okay. are just kind of failures. Um, this one was one of the ones that just didn't quite go so well. Okay. Um, it's it wasn't like a catastrophic defeat necessarily. Uh, the fourth crusade is the one that's really really controversial. It goes okay. totally off the rails and ends up sacking Constantinople. Okay, so so we'll get there. We'll yeah, get there. We will get to that one because that's a, that's something that comes up a lot. All right, right, then let's talk about the second crusade. Sure. Uh, why was it? Uh, why would people say that's unsuccessful? So what, what was the context there? They the first crusade's over, mm-hmm. and the second crusade gets called. What what's going on? So this uh, this one starts in 1147. So about a little less than 50 years after the end of the First Crusade. And it's called by Pope Eugenius III in response to the capture of Edessa uh, by the Turkish emir Imad ad-Din Zengi in the year 1144. So uh, Edessa was a very important uh, city that was part of the, the Latin states in the east, and it, it had been conquered uh, once again by the Turks. So uh, this... Jerusalem and the rest of the Christian presence in the Near East is in danger. And so he calls this crusade. We got to go help them out if we want, uh, if we want this uh, project to survive, basically. And this is, preached, this is the one that is preached very enthusiastically by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He gets King Louis VII of France and King Conrad III of Germany. Um, and so this is actually the first crusade that is led by royalty. The first mm-hmm. crusade was just um, dukes and counts and, and various noblemen. But this is the first one that has kings of Europe actually signing up and leading armies and going. So it seems like this is going to be bound for success because of that. Um, now, before they get there, uh, Zengi knows that a, another crusade is coming. So this is very dark. What he does is he slaughters the population of Edessa and destroys the city, raises the walls, raises it to the ground, basically, because he does he knows it's a very strategic uh, position, and he doesn't want the crusaders getting their hands on it, retaking it from him. So Yikes. by the, yeah yeah um, actually sorry that incorrect it wasn't Zengi it was his son Nur ad Din who did that okay um, to prevent its recapture and <sighs> yeah yeah um, so by the time they get there Odessa's gone uh, so they <laughs> what they uh, uh, what they do is they say okay well we're just going to help out the the Christians who are here um, now unfortunately due to uh, some poor basically poor leadership um, these not necessarily saying they were bad kings, but they weren't necessarily the best generals. Um, and there wasn't a very good con- coordination between Louis and Conrad. Uh, the crusading army is very much diminished by the time it actually gets there. It's a lot smaller than it started out as. Um, and with Edessa destroyed, what they do is they coordinate with the local Christians, uh, Latin Christians there, in an attempt to capture Damascus in Syria uh, from, from the Zengid uh, uh, Muslims. But they're not successful in doing so. Uh, and so they they return home to Europe with what is left of their armies, and uh, the expedition is, of course, widely considered a failure because they didn't really they didn't really accomplish anything. Um, they just lost a lot of men, and uh, and I mean, fortunately, they didn't lose much else. Uh, but Edessa, which was the purpose of of their going there, was destroyed, um, and so they didn't they didn't accomplish what they wanted to. So this was kind of a big Oof. blow. Yeah, it was a big blow in Christendom. It was. Uh, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux was very devastated because he had really preached this crusade uh, and and uh, really got people behind it, and it, it just didn't it just didn't work out. 
Yeah, here's uh, something that Bernard Clairvaux said when he was preaching the Crusades. He says, Now, O mighty soldiers, O men of war, you have a cause for which you can fight without danger to your souls, a cause in which to conquer is glorious, and for which to die is gain. And you're like, whew. He says, I call blessed the generation that can seize the opportunity of such rich indulgence as this, Blessed to be alive in this year of Jubilee, this year of God's choice. Take up the sign of the cross, and you will find indulgence for all the sins which you humbly confessed. The cost is small, the reward is great. And you're like, gets you fired up. Yeah, gets you fired up. Yeah. And he used a term, uh, the of malside versus homicide. Mm. He's saying the the killing of evil. He said Mm. that's what they were doing. They're committing malicide rather than than murder or homicide or anything like that. He's saying we we're go we go to conquer evil. Yeah. Um that's very disappointing though. Yeah. Yeah. That that actually brings up uh an interesting point is a lot of people think that the Crusades were just the Christians were just going over there and just slaughtering Muslims. That mm-hmm. that wasn't the case, right? Most of the inhabitants of these Latin kingdoms for pretty much all their history, uh, the majority are Muslims. So mm-hmm. they're just reestablishing Christian rule in these areas. They're allowing uh they're giving religious freedom to Christians. They're allowing them to visit the holy places. But the Muslims, they're, they're just allowing them to live there as long as they're willing to live peacefully. Uh, they're, not, they're not going through and, and trying to commit war crimes or, or uh, atrocities against them. Now, of course, war, there's, war is always ugly. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there were atrocities. There were things that were committed um, against the Muslims by Christians that, that are horrible. And the church never condoned any of those, those abuses. Uh, but the point remains that the point of the Crusades was not to was not to persecute or or kill or, or uh, otherwise abuse Muslims in any way. Right, for sure. It's very important to keep in mind that, um, like you said, the the abuses of things mm-hmm. does not negate the proper use of a thing. So just because someone abused the situation of the Crusades to to do bad things. The actual exhortation of the Crusades and the calling of it and the general, even the general acceptance of it by the people was good and even glorious. Exactly. Uh, so that's yeah. important to keep in mind. Definitely. So what's the uh, takeaway from Second Crusade? If, you, if you're listening to this and you, and you think, okay, I want to hear more about the Second Crusade. I want more details about that one thing. Uh, let me know. Maybe we can have, uh, have Andrew back on and maybe this could become a whole series where we just – go through crusade by crusade yeah. and, and go through but let me know if you're interested in that if not uh, let me know that as well but okay so conclude the second crusade for me wrap it up and then let's uh, str- show me how it transitions into the third crusade right basically uh edessa's destroyed uh before they even get there the army arrives very battered and diminished uh they try to try to take damascus uh strategic position they fail in doing that and uh, without being able to achieve much more because their forces are, are largely gone, uh, Louis and Conrad, they return to Europe. And this is widely considered a blow to – this is a blow to, to morale in Christendom. This is considered a failure. Uh, what's interesting to note is that they didn't give up on the idea of crusading generally. Mm. As we can see, there's, there's several, several more crusades. Um, but it is, it is disheartening. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, – and the Muslim threat still remained in in uh, the Near East in Palestine. Yes, here's uh, the what Saint Bernard said after the Crusades were over, the the Second Crusade rather. Mm. He says, "How can human beings be so rash as to dare to pass judgment 
on something that they are not in the least able to understand. It might perhaps be a comfort for us to bear in mind the heavenly judgments that were made of old. For it is true that the hearts of mortal men are made in this way. We forget when we need it, what, what we need it, what we know when we do not need it. The promises of God and never prejudice the justice of God. It's very interesting, the reaction that Bernard kind of had. He was not disheartened. I guess that's kind of what makes him a, makes him a saint. He's mm-hmm. saying, yeah, well, we it may have been uh, over for us in this particular situation, but everything is within the providence of God. Mm-hmm. And so even exactly. though they may have not been successful, something God would allow it for some great good, for some great good. And maybe that good was, and this is just me speculating, I have no insight into anything. However, I imagine that some of these people only made it to heaven because they went on crusade. Mm. If they had stayed home and they had just lived a normal life, and maybe they would have uh, ended up damned because they would have fallen into sin here, fallen into sin there. But it was uh, the going on crusade that that brought them to salvation. So uh, that's something interesting to think about. But uh, let's uh, transition to the third crusade. Yeah, well, I mean, you you said something there that's that's really good that I want to touch on, is this idea uh, that uh, crusaders were in in our modern time right people are very cynical about religious motivations mm-hmm. you know if you're a religious person uh they think oh well that that can't really be what that's about um you can't really just be doing things for purely religious motivations like what are you actually trying to get at and they project this this cynicism this materialism rather onto history right and they say okay so these crusaders um bless you uh, they they went to the east and they said they were trying to do all this good stuff and they were trying to help their Christian brethren and uh, accomplish this great religious good. But really, they just wanted to uh, to pillage and to get loot and to get wealthy and maybe you know just have a good time uh, doing whatever war crimes, right? Uh, but this this really doesn't make any sense because first of all, it's the it's not the younger sons of uh, Europe who don't have anything. So there's primogeniture, right? Which is the law that uh, to prevent the breakup of an inheritance or or an estate, uh, it would be the older son who would inherit everything. And the younger sons, uh, they kind of just had to fend for themselves. You know, they might get a little something, uh, but they they didn't get the main inheritance. They didn't get the property. Uh, So there were limited options for them, right? And so there was this theory for a while that, oh, it was all these younger sons who went on crusade because they wanted to make a name for themselves and, and get li- land and wealth uh, this way. The problem is, is that it wasn't the younger sons who went on crusade. It was the older sons because only the older sons who had the estates, who had the wealth, could afford to go on crusades, mm. right? This was a, a prohibitively um, expensive venture, right? You're going to the other side of the known world uh, and you're funding yourself and any military men that you have under your command to do the same. You got to provide provisions for them, equipment, uh, and and all that, right? And also, you know, you were probably going to get sick and maybe die before you even got there because there's diseases at this time, right? And and marching armies uh, moving any distance had to contend with that a lot. Uh, that's actually what doomed the I want to say the Seventh Crusade of Pi. Um, of Louis Louis the Ninth, but we'll get to that later. Is is disease very very big deal? Uh, you have to you have to eat right, and then it's very hot, right? And you're wearing all this armor. It's just not a fun experience, <laughs> right? And uh, and so they really they really did see this as a penitential act, mm. right? Um, they weren't trying to to get wealthy, and 
the the simple fact almost nobody did nobody did hardly anybody you know some well some lucky few maybe you know uh made out and and they profited in some way but the vast majority of them uh they came home and you know they, they had to like mortgage off properties to raise the funds to go on crusade in the first place right and then they knew that they were probably gonna if they made it home at all if they survived they were gonna come home basically broke right Mm. um so it's it's the older sons it's not the younger sons and uh they're they're just it's very expensive to do and they're not really getting anything uh materially out of it um and they're they're not yeah there's just no there's just no reason The, the main the main motivation was it had to be a religious motivation. There's just no other explanation. And there is also, uh, in that quote you mentioned, Bernard of Clairvaux is talking about indulgence, right? I want to discuss that a little bit more because uh, the, the main reason you wanted to go on crusade is, one, because it's a good thing, right? And you have those noble intentions, which I think are real. Um, I'm not that much of a cynic. Um, <laughs> but then there's also uh, a plenary indulgence involved. And for, for those of you who don't know, what an indulgence is, some people will say, oh, well, it's a get-out-of-hell-free card. Well, that's not what it is at all. What it is is a uh, get-out-of-purgatory-free with some conditions attached card. Right, right. Um, and, or maybe just get some time off of purgatory. Um, and the idea of an indulgence is that it's remitting the temporal punishment due to sins that have already been absolved, already been forgiven. And that's brought up in the in uh, by St. Bernard. He says that. Uh, he mentions that uh, sins that have already been uh, absolved in confession, right? So you have to be in a state of grace, right? You can't be in a mortal sin to earn the indulgence for that to be of any spiritual profit to you. And if you're going on crusade and you're committing mortal sins, you know, you're doing, ra- you know, rape and pillage and, and all this awful stuff, those are mortal sins. This this indulgence isn't going to do you any good. No. Uh, so the main reason you want to go on crusade is going to be completely... Uh, invalidated yeah yeah Yeah, it's going to be completely invalidated if you do any of the things that people just casually assert uh today from the the safe distance of a thousand or uh, several centuries um that was they think that that was their main motivation it couldn't have been it doesn't make any sense eugenius the third he said uh in regards to this papal indulgence right he says by the authority of omnipotent god and that of blessed peter the prince of the apostles Conceded to us by God, we grant remission of all of and absolution from sins in such a way that whosoever devoutly begins and completes so holy a journey or dies on it will obtain absolution from all his sins. And here's the 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 catch of which he has made confession with a contrite and humble heart. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important that the it was never understood that an indulgence like this or going on crusade, it wasn't like the Muslim understanding of it, where it's like you just, you die and therefore you go straight to, to what their version of heaven is. And the, uh, no, for, for the Catholics, it was, you must go to confession with a contrite heart. And then if you fulfill the dictates of the indulgence, then you receive the remission of your temporal punishment due to sin. And that's the important point to note. And it was very, very clear. No one, mm. people like to say about, I guess Martin Luther was hundreds of years later, but yeah. people like to say, oh, you know, they were selling the indulgences and the people thought that their family was burning in purgatory and you had to pay some money to get them out. And that was never the thought. The popes all were incredibly clear about what an indulgence was and how to receive one. Mm. Uh, but let's go to the uh, third crusade. 
Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. One more. We'll, thing. we'll one, get there. One but more. Just thing. because this is so okay. this okay. is so relevant. This is a quote from Pope Urban II. He's giving the speech that launches the first crusade. Right. So this is before anybody's gone on crusade, and this is what he says: Whoever wishes to save his soul should not hesitate humbly to take up the way of the Lord, and if he lacks sufficient money, divine mercy will give him enough. Brethren, we ought to endure much suffering for the name of Christ. Misery, poverty, nakedness, persecution, want, illness, hunger, thirst, and other ills of this kind. Just as the Lord saith to his disciples, Ye must suffer much in my name, and be not ashamed to confess me before the faces of men. Verily, I will give you mouth and wisdom. And finally, great is your reward in heaven. Mm. So what he's holding out to them here is, is purely spiritual reward, purely reward in the next life. He tells them straight up, this is going to suck. <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to derive any material worldly benefits from doing this, but it's the right thing to do. Mm, yeah. And that's why they that's why they did it. Quite simply. So true, king. <laughs> <laughs> Very based. Um well, anyway, so we continue the third crusade. Okay, so this is this is in 1189. So this is only um a few decades later. This is called by Pope Gregory the 8th, and this is in response to something much more serious. This is in response to the fall of Jerusalem itself, to Acre, Jaffa, and in fact, the rest of the Latin East has fallen, except for the one coastal city of Tyre, um, to the conquests of the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin. Now, people know the name Saladin, Salah al-Din. Um, he's, he's, very, he's a very famous figure, uh, and he was, a, he was a great commander. He uh, united Syria and Egypt under one sultanate. He was the, the sultan of both. So he kind of sandwiched the uh, the crusader kingdoms in Palestine. He he owns the territory to the north and to the south, and he draws forces, armies from both of those places, and he just swoop, swoops in and just is crushing them, right? He pushes them all the way to the coast. Tyre is all that's left. So this is a really serious situation. They've lost Jerusalem itself. Um, and so this is the context of the Third Crusade. Uh, so this this one is led principally by King Richard I, also known as the Lionheart, uh, King of England, and also King Philip II of France. Uh, so Richard, uh, he takes his ships, he goes, um, he's going to the Holy Land, but he's, he's wrecked, shipwrecked on Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, uh, which is controlled by Isaac Comnenus, who is actually an ally of Saladin. So he's not... This guy is not the emperor, the Eastern Roman emperor, but he claims to be the Eastern Roman emperor, but he only controls Cyprus. Cyprus. So there's kind of a, there's a bit of a civil dispute going on about who's the emperor, but he, he controls Cyprus and he's allied with Saladin. So he, Richard uh, crashes, he shipwrecks in enemy territory. And of course, Isaac goes to uh, pillage the ships, but Richard fights them all off and conquers the entire island. So <laughs> that goes to show you just how great of a military commander Richard is. Uh, this guy's a legend for a reason. And he he goes on to achieve a lot of other things. But right off the bat, he he takes Cyprus and it's Cyprus remains firmly under uh Christian or or Eastern um Western Christian control for for centuries. And this is actually what keeps the Holy Land from falling to the Muslims. Uh, for as long as as they do, because Cyprus is right there. They can supply all the coastal cities uh, with supplies, with with reinforcements. Um, it's it's a very important strategic uh, place, and he kind of conquers it, sort of by accident, right? He didn't mean to shipwreck there. Uh, pretty pretty amazing. So he goes um, after securing Cyprus. Uh, he goes on to Acre uh, to help Philip and King Guy de Lusignan of Jerusalem. 
and they retake the city from Saladin's forces together. At this point, Philip uh, says, I have fulfilled my vow, and he goes home, but he does leave the bulk of his army with Richard under Richard's command. So Richard is now the guy who's in charge, um, and he makes the most of it. He retakes the city of Jaffa, the coastal city of Jaffa. He reestablishes Christian control of the surrounding regions and along the coast. And every time he meets Saladin, he defeats him in battle. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like Saladin is widely respected uh, as, as being very honorable, but also being a very competent military commander. Mm. And a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the legends attributed to him are actually from Christian chroniclers who had a lot of good things to say about him. Uh, but he isn't as good as Richard. Richard is just a military genius, basically. And he's, and he's also an incredible fighter himself. Uh, there are instances where he, he fights his way out of situations where, I mean, any lesser man would, would have been overwhelmed and killed for sure. But he's just, he's a lion, right? So, That's why they okay. call him that. Jaffa, that mm-hmm. is, is that present day where we have Tel Aviv? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay, I'm trying to find it on a map right now. And I'm uh, trying to see, I think this is it. I want to say this is it where we have present day Tel Aviv. It's like right next door to it. Uh, but I'm not 100% certain. But there you go. Let's see. The Lionheart, though, yeah, he was amazing. And like you said, the the stories that go with it are almost um, are almost unbelievable because he goes in and he fights off people. It's like whenever I read the stories of King St. Ferdinand where he and just like four other men fought off like dozens of soldiers on their own. Yeah. And amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. It is, I looked it up. It is the, it is okay, the it same. Is. It's it's located in a section of what is now Tel Aviv. Okay. So, yeah. So the, the third crusade, technically, we're still having really, because he hasn't really got to his destination yet, right? So, I mean, what he's, what he's doing, and that, yeah, that brings me to the next point, is uh, he defeats Saladin several times. But what he realizes uh, from a strategic perspective is that he has the ability to hold anything on the coast because he's got Cyprus. Um, and uh, all these, these coastal cities can be resupplied from the sea. They can't really be, be besieged very easily by Saladin. Uh, but he, he knows that if he goes inland, um, he's going to have trouble uh, holding on to, not necessarily capturing territory, but holding on to it. Mm. And he's actually advised this by the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller who are there in the region. And they, they are basically his military advisors. And for his part, he's very wise. He listens to them. He knows that they know the lay of the land. They know how, how things work around here. And so he makes the very difficult decision to not march on Jerusalem, even though that's what he wants to do. Um, that's what's expected of him back in Europe. But he knows that it would just cost lives and resources um, that would be better spent um, protecting and, and helping those Christian territories that he knows he can hold on to on mm-hmm. the coast. Um, so instead, what he does is he negotiates... Christian access to Jerusalem uh, so they can go on pilgrimage there as part of the Treaty of Ramla with Saladin. And then, um, so basically, that's where it concludes, despite Jerusalem remaining in Muslim hands. The crusade does secure the existence of the Latin kingdoms in the Holy Land, and it's it's rightly considered uh, a, pretty, a pretty good success overall. Okay. Praise be to God. So that happens. Now, how do we get from there to the, to the Fourth Crusade? And this is the one where everybody 
starts freaking out about, and yeah. allegedly the Easterners are still upset with They're, us. Yeah, the Eastern Orthodox day. are still upset with uh, like, with the Roman Catholic Church to this day about this. So, like, dude, it was not even uh, I could I wasn't even me, nor my grandparents, nor my great grandparents, nor my great yeah. great grandparents. Yeah. Um, but there you go. So, what was the Fourth Crusade? How did it start? And mm-hmm. then we'll get to the controversy in a second. But how, let's start with. How? What was the actual goal of the Fourth Crusade? Right, right. So the Third Crusade concludes in the year 1192. Uh, the Fourth Crusade is called in 1202. So this is 10 years later. Uh, it's called by Pope Innocent III, and the goal is to retake Jerusalem, right? Because as successful as uh, the Third Crusade was, uh, they didn't get Jerusalem back, and that's that's what they want. And so uh, this is led by Count Louis I of Blois, Count Baldwin IX of Flanders, and Boniface of Montferrat. And what they do is they adopt King Richard I of um, his proposed strategy of securing a way to Jerusalem by taking Egypt first. Because they, they realize that um, the, the, the Muslim sultans, if they control Egypt, they're able to project power into uh, the Palestine region. So as long as they control Egypt, you're never going to secure Jerusalem. Uh, they can just send an army and take it back very easily. So their, their idea is, okay, we secure Egypt, we take control of Egypt, and once we do that, then we can take Jerusalem as, as just it's a matter of time before we are able to, um, to take it back. So that's, that's the plan, right? Um, so this, this, it gets really complicated, okay. but I'll try to keep it very concise here. Um, what they do is they get the – they contract the leader – of, uh, of Venice, Doge Enrico Dandolo, to provide them a fleet of ships so they can transport the army to Egypt. Okay. And so the Doge uh, sees, wow, this is a really big order. Um, we we got to fill this, and uh, this is going to be really good for our really good for our city, really good for our economy. So he he basically has everyone stop all their other work. The economy grinds to a halt, and he says, "Build oh, these wow. ships, right?" So this it's he, a big the, deal. It's a big deal. So they build this whole fleet, right? And um, and they they complete it and they're ready to go, but the issue is that uh, none of these leaders of the crusade are royalty. They're not kings, mm. so they're they're lesser nobility. And you know they they still have uh, armies of their own. They they still have you know uh, military power. But uh, a lot of the volunteers uh, who sign up for the crusade who aren't necessarily their their direct vassals, they don't re- they don't think that they're beholden to to them to like depart from Venice. So they're like, oh, well, we, we can go to Egypt our own way. We're not necessarily, we're not obligated to meet up in Venice and depart from there. So a lot of crusaders go a different route. Uh, and so what this results in is the army gets to Venice and it's about a third of the size as was expected. And they oh, were all going to, wow. yeah, they were all going to pitch in to pay for this thing. So they, they can't pay for it. So this is, this is a really bad situation because uh, the Doge, I mean, the Venetians do need to be paid for this because uh, their economy will may not recover. It'll take decades for them to recover, and out uh, of justice as well. Yeah, out of yeah. justice, like they they made a valid contract and everything. So it's not just them being greedy or selfish or anything. Like they they do need the money, uh, but they they genuinely can't pay them back. So they're they're uh, trying to figure out what to do, and the Doge. Uh, Basically, what he says is he offers to accept as payment their aid, the Crusader Army's aid, in retaking the city of Zara, which is on the on the coast. I forget the of Croatia. Croatia, yeah, it's on I the. Co- the ma- I have the map up. There you go. Very good. You're the <laughs> I, map guy. 
Excellent. So he's, yeah, um, a city on the, the coast of Croatia, which was kind of under Venetian control before, but they, they, re, they revolted and threw off Venetian rule. And so they say, hey, you know, if you help us uh, re, reconquer Zara, um, we'll consider that as, as payment for the fleet. Now, this is extremely controversial because Zara is a Christian city. It's mm. not a Muslim city. It's not even an Eastern Orthodox city. Uh, it's, it's a it's Roman, Catholic. it's a Catholic yeah. city. Uh, and so this is a crusade. And they don't really want to do that, but they allow themselves to be persuaded because of the situation they're in. And so they go and they actually do that. They, they siege the city for a week. It falls pretty quickly. Uh, they give it back to the Venetians. And uh, this is, there's a lot of dissension in the ranks because it's, like I said, it's very, um, it's very controversial. It's seen as something of a violation of the Crusader vows. They said we should be going and fighting the Muslims. Why are we fighting other Christians? Um, but the, and some, some, a lot of the Crusaders do abandon the Crusade and they they go to Egypt their own way. But nonetheless, the main force does uh, continue to Zara and take it back. And when Pope Innocent hears about this, he immediately excommunicates the entire army, um, and fearing the impact on morale that this is going to have. This fact is actually hidden by the commanders mm. from the rest of the army because they know that if the rest of the, the men, if they find out they're excommunicated because they participated in this, the, the thing is going to fall apart. They're not going to want to continue. Uh, they're just going to go home or, or go to Egypt on their own somehow. So they, they kind of hide this fact and they send um, envoys to the pope uh, insisting on their repentance. They ask for forgiveness and he's persuaded to to um, forgive them and uh he, he sort of considers them to have been coerced by the Venetians, so he kind of blames the Venetians more than he blames them. So he, he lifts the excommunication on all the non-Venetians uh, in the army, uh, but he, he insists that they, they don't make any further delay. They need to go to Jerusalem uh, and continue their crusade. Now, they're wintering at Zara because at this time, armies can't really move around and, and travel very safely during the winter, so this is expected. They, they're wintering at Zara. Uh, they, the Crusaders receive emissaries from Alexius Angelos, who is the son of the deposed Eastern Emperor Isaac II Angelos. And so he, gives, he offers them a deal. He says, in exchange for your assistance in uh, restoring me to the throne of Constantinople, which is really mine by right, um, I'm going to join the crusade myself, and I'm going to provide imperial troops as well as all this money, all this financial support uh, for the campaign. So... This is a tempting offer, right? But right. we would have to go, the crusade, it and would have to be diverted again, another yeah. detour and fight more Christians, right? <laughs> Probably. They're Eastern Christians, but they're still Christians, right? Right. Um, and uh, they and This they is the 1200, so this is when the beginning of the schism becomes more obvious, because the schism has been happening for yeah. a couple hundred years at this point. Yeah. But now this is like kind of where we're coming to a head where there's more and more debate. The 1200s and the mid-1200s is whenever the council happens and St. Thomas is going to the council to debate with the Eastern Orthodox. So we've seen mm. these things starting to come to a head. So on top of the military issues and all these other things, there's doctrinal and dogmatic issues on top of the political yeah. issues that are happening. So that's just a historical uh, tidbits about that, but yeah, it's just it's just stoking the fire at this point, right? So um, they don't want to do it, but they it's it's just too tempting of an offer. They know that I mean they have no money. They've 
spent all the money they had to try and pay the Venetians back, and they still have a, a much smaller army than they wanted. Mm-hmm. So they say, we'll get imperial troops, we'll get financial backing uh, for this crusade. Maybe it'll actually work if we do this. Um, so there's, there's, de- there's debate about it. Simon of Montfort, one of the leaders, he says, hard no, he leaves with his men. Uh, but the rest of the rest that, of the leaders, you may not know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the answer to this. Is that the Simon de Montfort, the one who fights along with Saint Dominic? Um, so Simon de Mont, this Simon de Montfort is the same one who is heavily involved in the Albigensian. Crusade. Oh, so it is. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Okay, we won't go on that tangent. Maybe we'll for a little bit later. But yeah. I love the Albigensian Crusade, and Saint Dominic is in, in intimately involved. And I found this out recently. I was reading mm-hmm. the history of the Third Order of the Dominicans. Mm-hmm. The first third order of Dominicans were a knightly order that was created to protect the Dominican friars as they were preaching to the Albigensians. I didn't know that. And it was only later they became the third order of penance. And they, it was like uh, one generation after St. Dominic, they became the third order of penance. And they just did uh, offered sufferings and things like that for Mm -hmm. the Dominicans. But when they first were founded, they were a military order to to protect the Dominicans going out into a to fight against the uh, Albigensians. I did not know that. That's yeah. really interesting. But, but yeah, anyway, but same anyway. guy, same, same guy. guy. Very cool. Okay. So yeah, that's he, he. That's part of why he is chosen uh, to play such a pivotal role in the Albigensian Crusade is because he has this reputation of for, for piety. Mm. Because he said, "No, I'm not going to do that," and he he left when everybody else said, "Yeah, let's go along with it." So the rest of them, they sign uh, this this agreement. Uh, let's see, Louis Baldwin and Boniface they accept Alexius's offer. And they depart for Constantinople. So once they do this, Pope Innocent, when he finds out, he sends a letter. He forbids them to go. Um, but again, this message is hidden from the rank and file. They don't know because they know that it's going to affect morale. So they get to Constantinople. Boniface and Enrico, what they do is uh, Enrico Dendola, the doge. So he comes along as well. They uh, get on a, a, a boat and they uh, sail up the, the, I guess it's the isthmus, the, the port right, opening to the city. Okay. Um, and they have Alexius on the ship, and they display him. And they say, hey, here's your guy, right? Um, they display him to the citizens on the walls and proclaim their good intentions, but they're actually met with curses and insults, and they they throw things at them, and some of them even shoot arrows. So <laughs> they're realizing that Alexius, who said, oh, you know, I'm the rightful I'm the rightful emperor. They love me. You know, uh, there's just these bad guys who, who drove me out, uh, but we just need to deal with them. The citizens love me. That's not true. Like, he, nobody likes this guy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at this point, they're, they're too committed, and so uh, they go ahead with it anyway. Um, they assault the city. They actually capture the city um, right off the bat. I mean, it doesn't take them very long to take the city. Um, Alexius is crowned emperor, but without popular support or full control of the city, he isn't able to deliver on his promises, and the army, the crusading army, remains camped outside of the walls of Constantinople. And then, after that, a Greek nobleman named, uh, okay, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Mortsufalos, um, he organizes an anti-Latin faction oh. in the city, and he assassinates Alexius and has himself crowned emperor. Oh, yikes. And, yeah, so then... <laughs> He's, it's an anti-Latin faction. That's how he rose to power. So, of course, what does he do to the crusading army? He just shuts the, the city gates in their face and tells them to leave. And he refuses, basically, to to uphold any of the uh, terms of the agreement they had with with Alexius. Um, and so they're, they're pretty ticked off by this point. And so they don't feel like they have any other option. They besiege the city. Um, 
they take it within just a few days. They seize and execute Martsoufalos, and then uh, the leaders they allow they basically just allow their troops to go on a rampage. They they ransack the city for for days on end. It's it's very it's very brutal. It's it's atrocious. It shocks uh, the the Christian world. Uh, it's not it's not a good episode in the in the history of the Crusades. Um, but to be clear, this was not a crusade at the time that this happened because it had been the expedition had been excommunicated twice at this point. Um, and uh, they were forbidden for, from even going to Constantinople at all, uh, let alone actually taking the city and sacking it. Mm. Uh, so obviously this sends shockwaves to Christendom. Pope Innocent issues a bull of excommunication again against the participants. Again. Imagine um, getting excommunicated that many times. Yeah, yeah. It creates a great scandal throughout Christendom, and it, it dramatically worsens the relationships with uh, between the East and the West. Uh, and it doesn't, of course, reach its destination. Never gets to Egypt. Um, it's it's a cons- basically a catastrophic failure. There's there's nothing really good that happened from this. Yeah, that's probably the the biggest one that's everybody points to. That's the big the, oof. Yeah, that's the big right oof. There. And the uh, that's the one that the Easterners are still upset about to this day. Which I'm like, look, dude, we've apologized for it already. We've done everything we could. It's been a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Can, can we like move on? It's yeah. it's literally been a, almost a thousand years. It's been like what eight nine hundred years almost. Yeah. Well, what's something um, something to consider as well is that if you not that long before, I don't recall exactly what year, but not that long before, there was a a massacre of all the Latin Christians in the city in Constantinople. Right. Um, so I don't know if they've publicly apologized to us for that. Almost certainly not. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> but you know. Um, I'm not still holding on to that. You know, I knew it was I know it's those people who lived at that time who did that thing. And that wasn't all Eastern Orthodox people, um, you know, but I don't think we need to get into that, really. Uh, but that that's that's part of the context. You know, mm. um, they were. So what happened to yeah. the members who actually did end up going to the Holy Land during this time? The actual Fourth Crusade. Right. So um, uh, it's it's not really clear because there, there wasn't um a large organized force that had got there at mm. this time. Um, what most likely happened was they kind of just trickled in and then just helped out the the Latin kingdoms. Because there were, I mean, all throughout this period, there are volunteers. There's crusaders showing up, you know, in trickles, um, just kind of on their own. And what they do is they generally work with the, uh, the local Latin Christians there, and they help them out on, you know— uh, recapturing, you know, a, a village here or there or, you know, fending off a raid or, or doing something, fulfilling their vow in some way before they before they go home. Um, but uh, that the numbered crusades, this is kind of for historical convenience. Right. Um, it's just to to denote those major military expeditions mm-hmm. um, that, that went to the Holy Land and were called specifically by the Pope. Right. So there was no, like, this is when the Fourth Crusade ended and the fifth one began more, it's like we kind of set these dates up to try to give a general uh, siloing of situations. But really, there was an ongoing crusade constantly during this time period. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, the fourth crusade did did pretty much end in 1204 with the sacking of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fifth crusade was just a few years later, is in 1213. Uh, so like nine years later. Um, and this is actually Pope Innocent. The same Pope Innocent, Pope Innocent III, because, um, well, they didn't get to Jerusalem. So he, he still wants, we still need to retake Jerusalem. Um, and uh, this one 
actually does what it's supposed to, right? So the goal is go to Egypt, conquer Egypt. Uh, Pope Innocent is is disillusioned with the way the last crusade once I'm sure. went. So he <laughs> uh, he changes a lot of the uh, the way that it's done, and he basically wants to put it under church like hierarchical control as much as possible. So he mm. sends his papal legate, uh, P- Cardinal Pelagius of Albano, to be the point man and to to basically command and and lead the crusade. So anyone on the crusade um, nominally answers to him, basically. Uh, So this is actually led by a very strong coalition of European and Latin East rulers. There's King Andrew II of Hungary, Duke Leopold VI of Austria, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, although he doesn't actually make it in time. He joins the crusade, but he doesn't get there before the fighting is over. Oof. Um, Yeah, so that's important actually for the Sixth Crusade. So that's why I mention it. Oliver of Paderborn, Count William I of Holland, John of Brienne, and Bohemond IV of Antioch. So uh, they get the coalition together. They make some gains from Sultan al-Adil, who is the brother of Saladin, who Saladin had died by this point. Uh, They make some gains in Palestine, but then they direct their efforts towards taking control of Egypt. Uh, their, Their first target is the port city of Damietta, which is at the mouth of the Nile. And they take that successfully, but they're unable to move from there to Cairo and take Cairo, which was their goal. Um, half the crudit sighting force was almost annihilated, actually, because oh, they got really? cut off as when they were going up the Nile. Um, and it, it, it was almost destroyed because, um, yeah, they were cut off and surrounded. But Al-Kamil, who was the son of Al-Adil, uh, he was in the Sultan of Egypt at this time. Um, he decides, no, we're not going to move in and just slaughter this army. Uh, he, he very wisely negotiates their withdrawal from Egypt in exchange for their lives, right? So if he had went ahead and destroyed this army, they still, the Crusaders still own, have Damietta, and this this slaughter probably would have galvanized the crusade, actually, instead of um, destroying it, right? Hmm. They would have, uh, Damietta would have been a gathering point for more Crusaders, and then they could uh, march in force up the Nile, recover from the mistakes they made, and actually probably have taken Cairo. But he's he's pretty smart. So he says, okay, I'll let you go, but you have to withdraw from Damietta. You have to w- leave Egypt. And so they don't want to die, obviously. So they, they agree to that. And um, that's basically how it ends. They don't secure Egypt or Jerusalem. They make some gains in Palestine, uh, but the crusade is widely considered a failure, though it's not a severe defeat. So this is, you said, 12... 1213 to 1221. 1213 to 1221. So this mm-hmm. goes from the uh, to the end of Innocent Mother's life then? Um, let's see. I believe so, because I think Pope Honorius, I want to say. I don't I don't have that written down. But I think he, he takes a point. Yeah, Pope Innocent does die yeah. during this time. The reason why I know that is because in 1216, mm-hmm. the Dominican order went to Innocent III to become an official order. Mm-hmm. And he dies before he gives approval, but then never yeah. promulgates it. And so it was the his successor, Honorius, who ends up approving of the Dominican order. And so does that mean the this is the this is when the Albigensian Crusade also started as well? Yeah, so the Albigensian Crusade, it's very close to this time. I know that. Let me see. It's uh yeah, twelve oh nine is is when it starts. Okay. And it goes for about twenty years to okay, twelve twenty nine. Yeah. And this crusade is is this the first one that's not in the Middle East? Um yeah, this is the first one that is not, uh, yeah, that is not at least, well, the, the Fourth Crusade doesn't get there. Right, But right. the fifth, yeah, this is the first one that, that gets to... That's officially against 
that officially guess, happens against Muslims. Right. Well, no, I mean, um, the Egyptians were Muslim. Uh, the the Albigensians were Muslim. No, not the Albigensians. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, the Albigensian, okay. the Albigensian crusade was this the first one? Oh, that you're was... talking about that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the Albigensian crusade. Um, no, because there was the Reconquista, which had already started. Oh, okay. And then I think the northern, also known as the Baltic Crusades, had started. Yeah, those started back in like 1147. Okay. So there's there's crusading going on in other parts of the world. It's not just uh, the Holy Land, the Middle oh, okay. East. Um, but the the Albigensian Crusade is the first one, the first crusade that happens internally in Christendom. Mm, right. Okay. So the other crusades are against external threats, usually Muslims. The Northern Crusades are against pagans um, that are that are in the Baltic region. Uh, but the Albigensian Crusade is is really the first one where it's this is in Christendom itself, um, and we're we're fighting actually other Christians alongside these Albigensian heretics. Mm. Um, that's actually part of the why this was considered a big deal, is that um, I think, was it Pope Honorius? Let me see. I think it was, yeah, well, it was Pope Innocent III, actually. He was the one who called the Albigensian Crusade. Right. And a part of his rationale was saying, we're not doing well in the Crusades in Spain and in the in the um, the Holy Land because we have this sickness in the body of Christ. Right. We have to deal with the sickness internally first uh, if we want to be successful in fighting the body to be healthy and strong to fight off the external threat. So um, previous attempts to eradicate Catharism in Languedoc, southern France, weren't weren't going so well. So he calls in the big guns. Um, he calls a crusade. And uh, what's ironic is that ultimately. Uh, it proved successful, but then the Holy Land is lost after that, right? Mm. So it didn't it didn't quite work out the way he was hoping. Well, the Albigensian heresy, mm. whenever it came up, and this was the time period whenever the uh, Holy Rosary was given mm-hmm. to Saint Dominic, right. and this is also when Saint Dominic goes out into the into he goes out with the bishop. I'm forgetting the bishop's name. I should know this. The, the bishop uh, and took that St. Dominic, who is the canon of Osmo, and was like, okay, uh, Bishop Diego, that's his name, Bishop mm-hmm. Diego. He takes him and they go out uh, on a papal mission because they're, the preaching to the Albigensians had been failing miserably for years and years. And they they went to say, okay, let's, let's try a different method. And it was by the, the poverty and asceticism of St. Dominic that they were able to actually start converting people. And so Innocent III starts putting his backing behind it, and it starts uh, with the... So then you have the Albigensian uh, Crusade happening alongside the preaching and the foundation of the Dominican Order and the preaching and, and foundation of the of the Holy Rosary, mm-hmm. uh, which is very interesting, which will uh, it's a, plays a big role when we come into Lepanto, which happens uh, not too long from here. Well, I guess it is long. Well, uh, it's in 1527, yeah. I want to say. Yeah. So it's a so few it is centuries a little, later, yeah, a few but centuries. that was a crusade, right? The The Holy League uh, was another name for a crusade, actually. Uh, so it was a crusade called by Pope Pius, Pope St. Pius V in the, the 1500s that defeats the Ottoman fleet at Lepanto, and that's mm-hmm. that's widely considered as saving Christendom because of the stakes involved, the, the strategic value of um, of the what they were defending, you know? Um, so that, that kind of goes to show that despite ultimately losing the Holy Land— um, the Crusades were successful if you conceive of the Crusades as a broader movement to defend Christendom 
from external threats, namely namely the Muslims. Mm-hmm. And you know, the other thing is, it's interesting, is the Dominicans, many of the Dominican martyrs were martyred by Christian heretics. It was mm-hmm. by the yeah. Albigensians who would ambush the different Dominicans that were traveling and kill them because they were so successful in converting that they would set up ambushes and, and Justin Martyr... Um, Saint, uh, which different Saint Justin Martyr from the early church yeah, father. Yeah, figure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the there's many of the of the Dominican saints who have, who are martyrs, and they only they never left Christendom, mm-hmm. and they were all martyrs yeah. from the different heretics. So it's very interesting. But let's go back. Okay, Fifth Crusade. Uh, right. What's going on? What are we doing? Okay, so the Fifth Crusade. Yeah, basically, uh, it doesn't it doesn't work out so well, but it's it's not that that severe of a defeat. Okay. Um, now, this leads into basically, I mean, directly into the Sixth Crusade, because we mentioned earlier that the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, he took the cross, he was going to go on the Fifth Crusade, and he was on his way, actually. The Crusaders were really holding out for his arrival, because he's he's the emperor, right? And he's got a very big army, um, and that that's part of why it was such a big deal that Al-Kamil didn't uh, destroy the army when he had them when he had mm. them surrounded. That half of the half the Crusader force at that time, um, and instead negotiated their withdrawal from Egypt. Because if he had destroyed them, the Crusade probably would have been a success. Which is very which is very ironic, right? Yeah. Um, because they still held Damietta, right? That's half the Crusader force still at Damietta, and then you have the Imperial Army show up, and then they're galvanized because oh, half our army was martyred, right? So we really have to beat this guy now. We really have to, you know, not let them die in vain. You know, it, it would have inspired them probably to uh, march up, defeat Al-Kamil, take Cairo, and secure Egypt. And then from there, you know, Jerusalem uh, wouldn't have been that difficult to to recapture. But uh, it is what it is. That's, that's how <laughs> history goes. Um, One of the great what-ifs of history. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild to think about. But uh, anyway, um, so this is like 10 years later. Um, he, he was on his way, but then the crusade was over before he got there. So he kind of just went home, um, and he was looking for his opportunity to go on crusade because he'd taken his vow, but he hadn't fulfilled his vow because he didn't actually do anything. Right. Um, and so, uh, he actually had obtained the title of King of Jerusalem by marriage. And so he's just kind of wait, but he doesn't, the the kingdom of Jerusalem doesn't control, uh, comprised the the city of Jerusalem at this time. Um, It just has some other territories in the Holy Land. So he's kind of waiting for his opportunities. He's he's keeping an eye on local politics. The local Muslim emirs and and rulers are kind of fighting each other, squabbling among themselves, as they often do. And he's looking for an opportunity to to press his claim. Uh, And so, but it's been 10 years. And so, let's see, it's uh, Pope Gregory the the Ninth becomes, he he accedes to the throne of St. Peter. And... um, in 1227, and he commands the emperor to fulfill his crusading vow or be excommunicated. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Imagine being told, <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to go to war or you're going to be excommunicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. That's now, rough. I I don't know a ton about the, the context here, but I do know that um, there was probably some politics involved here because mm-hmm. while he's on crusade, a papal army gathers to try and retake uh, the the uh, Holy Roman Empire's holdings in Italy. Um, so there's like this is one of those. On. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So Pope Gregory seems Who to be the king here. Uh, the... This is Frederick II. This is Frederick II. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. 
Um, so there's there's tensions there. Um, so it, it seems like there's some political motivations here, but it, it's hard to say for sure. But he does he you know he takes it seriously, but unfortunately he gets he comes down with an illness and he can't depart that year. So he gets excommunicated. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Gregory doesn't uh, accept any excuse here. He's just like, nope, I told you to go and you didn't go. So you're excommunicated. Oh, man. So, but what he does is he publicly vows, um, you know, next year, whether I'm excommunicated or not, I'm going on crusade. I'm going to the Holy Land. So he gets his army together and he goes. He goes. Um, he arrives in the Holy Land. He gets a mixed reception because he's excommunicated. Some people rally to him, mostly the Germans who live there. They say, this is our guy, so we're going to help him. A lot of other folks are very hesitant about helping him out because he's he's excommunicated. They're not supposed to associate with him. Um, but uh, he does, let's see, um, he's, he's able to, he has enough military power that he poses a serious threat uh, to Al-Kamil. And so Al-Kamil um, is, is he, he's tied up in his own, uh, conflicts. He's he's fighting other Muslims, right? So he's like besieging Damascus, and he he isn't able to be everywhere at once. Um, so he's, what year are we in now? This is twelve twenty eight. Okay, yeah, or no? I think it's twelve twenty eight or twelve twenty nine. I'm not sure which year he arrives in, okay. but it's it's that time. Yeah. Um, so he's he's tied up with a couple of things, and so um, he's he's really he's really worried, and so um, eventually. Uh, Frederick, he gains the support of the Templars and the Hospitallers, so he's got a really big force, and Camille, Al-Kamil is, is very concerned. So um, they, they actually set up negotiations pretty much right away, and Al-Kamil um, offers the peaceful surrender of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth uh, in exchange for Frederick not attacking him. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's, that's how difficult of a strategic position he's put himself in. Uh, so Frederick accepts. So he gets Jerusalem back uh, without any fighting. It's completely peaceful. Um, the holy yeah, that's city, kind of unheard of. Yeah, the holy city is restored to Christian rule, and it's considered a very great victory, uh, made even greater by its entirely peaceful resolution. And uh, now all of Europe is very uh, well. Uh, Pope Gregory, let's just say he's in a, an awkward position because he he excommunicated the that's guy who retook Jerusalem. Like, so what do they do? What do yeah, they what do yeah. they do with this guy? Yeah. So, but what's what's actually pretty sad is that. Um, Frederick isn't able to stay that long because he has to go home and defend his holdings in Italy from mm. the papal army. <laughs> is, oh, man. Right? So it's just like, man, church, politics. politics. Think people think church politics is bad today. Yeah. At least uh, the Pope isn't besieging your nation. Right. He's not, <laughs> he's not gathering armies and he's not, you know, um, trying to trying to invade your country. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's, okay. Yep. And so this this... Is the fifth crusade or the sixth this is crusade? This the sixth now? crusade. Okay, so now there's the yeah. sixth crusade. So yeah, he gets Jerusalem back, which is great. Wow. Okay, so did he get? Did they lift the excommunication on him? I I, I assume I assume so. No, I think he I think his excommunication was lifted. Okay. I mean, he fulfilled. I mean, his, yeah, his vow. Yeah, he, he went fin- on crusade. Yeah. And that's and what he, he was supposed to do. And he succeeded. <laughs> yeah, and he succeeded. He did the one thing that he everyone wanted him to do. Wow. Okay. Well, praise be to God. Yeah. Okay. So seventh crusade. This is where we get into some more saints. Uh, that are going on crusade, right? This is when is this when Louis the Ninth goes on crusade? So yeah, that's the seventh crusade. Okay, is, is the first crusade of Louis the Ninth of France. So um, this is in twelve forty four. Pope Innocent the Fourth calls this crusade to retake Jerusalem, which has actually been lost again oh. to the Khwarizmian Muslims, another group 
who swept through and, and conquered the area because, of course, remember, they hadn't taken Egypt. He just got Jerusalem, who Nazareth, these? and Bethlehem. They, these people are, are not in the same... They're they're kind of a new they're kind of a new group. Okay. Um, I, I forget exactly where they're from. Maybe from the steppes of Asia. It seems like a lot of people come from the steppes of Asia, but I'd have to verify <laughs> okay. that. Okay. But um, yeah, Jerusalem is retaken by by the Muslims, but not the same Muslims. Okay. Just different Muslims. Anyway, um, so Pope Innocent the Fourth calls this crusade. King Saint Louis the Ninth of France um, really spearheads this crusade, um, and so. Uh, yeah, so it follows the now-established strategy of trying to conquer Egypt to secure the way to Jerusalem. Louis experiences some initial success. He captures Damietta quickly, and he advances on Cairo. And he, he corrects a lot of the strategic mistakes that were made by the Fifth Crusade. Um, and he's, he's making his way in force up the Nile River towards Cairo. It's very concerning to the, uh, to the Muslims because it looks like he's, he's going to be able to take Cairo. But unfortunately, one of his... Um, uh, one of his men, uh, Count Robert of Artois, uh, makes kind of a rash decision. He fends off uh, one column of the army from being attacked, but then he goes on a counterattack and besieges Cairo before, without waiting mm. for the rest of the army. He's defeated, and then that puts the rest of the army in this very difficult position. Um, and they're cut off from their supply lines. Uh, they're weakened by disease, and they're eventually the army is eventually slaughtered entirely by the by the Egyptian reinforcements. Under Sultan Turan Shah, um, only the king and some of his highest-ranking knights uh, are spared, so that they can be ransomed back. Because ransom money's—it's a very big deal. You can get a lot of money for ransoming back the king of France. Yeah, I bet. Um, so, uh, so they do that. But then, uh, soon after, um, Turan Shah is actually murdered by a coup of his own Mamluk officers. It's, now, this is the the Muslim ruler. He, this is the Egypt. Yeah, the Sultan. Of Egypt, okay, right? and the the Mamluks they're they're Muslims as well. Oh, okay, but they're okay. they're basically slave soldiers. So they're taken. Um, they're, I forget I forget exactly where they come from, but they are they're another people group. And uh, this this was actually fairly common. If you were royalty, um, you would have your bodyguard be um, an ethnic group from somewhere other than uh, where you. Oh, really? Your live? Yeah, yeah. And and the idea was that uh, a foreigner was less likely to murder you in a coup and take control because they're not the same ethnicity as the people they'd be ruling over, and so they probably wouldn't be able to gain popular support. Uh, but it doesn't work out in this case. They, <laughs> they, they kill him anyway, and they do take control. Oh, man. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the Mamluks are, are they're pretty hardcore. They're actually very, uh, very zealous uh, jihadist Muslims, and so they take the, the counter-crusade, like, very seriously. Mm. So they, they take control. The Mamluks, um, take, they um, take this opportunity to take control of the rest of Egypt, right? Um, I'm sorry, Turan Shah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Okay, that's right. Um, so they're, they're actually able to rise up and take control of Egypt because of the crusade, right? There's a lot going on. And so they're able to launch this coup. But then they negotiate with the crusaders to withdraw from Damietta. So they will release Louis and his noblemen in return. Um, and then Louis goes to Outremer, which is where – that's the Latin East to, to Palestine. And he stays there for uh, about four years. He improves the fortifications of several Christian cities. He, revol- he resolves some political disputes in the region – he establishes a permanent French garrison. He's basically the de facto king there okay. for a while. He's very, very well respected. Um, you know, 
uh, he's seen as a very wise, very peaceful ruler. And so he's kind of the king there for a while, but then eventually he leaves some troops behind and he goes back to Europe. Um, and uh, despite, you know, uh, his reputation remaining intact uh, as, as a very pious and wise ruler, the crusade is, is very obviously a, a pretty big failure. And not only that, the... Um, while the crusade was able to destabilize Egypt, right, and topple the Ayyubid dynasty, which was the, the dynasty of Saladin, could be considered a good thing, except what it did is it allowed the Mamluks to take control. And the Mamluks were the ones who really took jihad seriously, and they were the ones who ultimately retook all of Palestine and Syria and uh, conquered Acre, which was the last crusader stronghold. And uh, in 1291, that's when Acre fell. That's when the Latin presence in the east was completely uh, extinguished. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's so pretty big. Is is so pre- a pretty big failure. Yeah. So in um let me see if I get this correctly. So in in winning the Holy Land back, it ended up causing more problems because it was taken from them by a more no. Well not, it was not, not, it was Jerusalem. not Jerusalem. It wasn't the Mamluks who took Jerusalem. It was it was somebody else. Okay. Um no, I mean the Sixth Crusade was a was a good thing. Frederick being able to retake Jerusalem mm-hmm. was a good thing, but unfortunately they just couldn't hold on to it, right? Okay, because they didn't control Egypt, you know. Okay, um, and so Egypt—that's where Louis the Ninth went. That's where to he go went, fight, and that's where he died, right? He didn't die there. No, but he didn't die there. No, he he, he, survived. he survived. His army was wiped out, though. Okay, yeah, and uh, you know, if I I was reading the the biography of King Saint Ferdinand, which. He's a lesser-known cousin of King St. Louis IX, hmm. and they uh, both were fighting crusades at the same time period. But King St. Ferdinand was mostly doing Reconquista yeah, because he was yeah Spain, and he was surrounded. There's actually letters between Louis IX and Ferdinand uh, to each other where Louis IX is asking that Ferdinand come to assist him. And Ferdinand is known as the Moor Slayer, and everywhere he would go, the Moors yeah. would surrender when he showed up to the battlefield because he was just so well-known for just— wrecking havoc on the Muslims mm-hmm. that they would just surrender immediately when he showed up. He was also known to be very merciful to the Muslims whenever he would take back the land. He would, uh, if they surrendered, he would just let them stay, basically, mm-hmm. and just as long as they were peaceful. And the and he wrote back to Louis IX and told him, hey, you know, I would, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help you as soon as I can, but right now I'm surrounded by Muslims on every side, so as soon as I'm settled with the situation in Spain, I'm going to come and help. Mm-hmm. And uh, he finally finished taking back Spain. And when he was going to go to Egypt to uh, assist Louis IX, he gets sick and dies. So he never actually went to go be able to help Louis IX. You mean uh, Ferdinand gets sick? Or? Yeah, Ferdinand gets okay. sick. Yeah. Okay. So Ferdinand yeah. gets sick and he ends up uh, dying before he ever makes it to uh, assist his cousin. So they never they never fought together. Yeah, disease is a big factor. It's a very big factor at this time. Yeah, the, the, the meditations on the lives of Louis IX and Ferdinand are compared Mm-hmm. And they say a King St. Ferdinand is the model of a king in perfection and virtue and and uh, victory and how to win and things like that. Whereas Louis the Ninth is the model of a, a king in suffering and mm-hmm. losing and failure and things like that. And the, 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 the two cousins, uh, cousin saints who are all kings, are models of the two aspects and two things that uh, situations that a king can find himself in. Yeah. Wow. That's... That's really good. That's really good stuff. Okay, onward. Where right. are we are finishing the Seventh Crusade. Yep. Let's that, go there. That ends in, uh, yeah, so that ends in 1254. And then in 1270, uh, King St. Louis IX wants to go on a Second Crusade. 
Okay. Um, and uh, his noblemen all oppose the idea. <laughs> they said, your last crusade didn't go that well, and you're kind of old now. Um, maybe you shouldn't do this. But he, he can't be swayed from it. He says, no, I got to fulfill my crusading vow, um, which he kind of had already done. But he really he really wants to do this, right? Um, and so uh, this, this crusade is different because he actually goes and tries to capture Tunis uh, to yeah, secure... Tunis. Yeah, Tunisia. So it's... Um, it's really right across the um, the Mediterranean from Italy. Um, okay. Yeah, if you want to yeah, pull that up, map. Jamie. <laughs> Jamie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, North Africa, um, it's it's a strategic location for controlling the Western Mediterranean. He wants Just to establish... east of Libya, okay, mm. and, west, and west of Algeria. Mm. There you go. So the idea is to establish a foothold in Africa so that he can move against Egypt and ultimately onto the Holy Land. So after uh, he, he captures Carthage, uh, but shortly after this, a disease breaks out in Louis' army. It kills many. The king himself falls ill, and that is where he dies. He dies oh, okay. in Tunis um, of disease. And uh, this is really this is really sad. Um, everyone loved King St. Louis. Um they, everyone really respected him. So all of Europe, when they find out, they're mourning for the, the death of King St. Louis. Um, but they're still there in Tunis. So Louis' brother, uh, Charles of Anjou, he's the king of Sicily, actually. Uh, he brokers the Treaty of Tunis with the emir, Muhammad of Tunis, which brings to the conflict to a swift end. And this agreement did secure the release of Christian prisoners and the rights of Tunisian Christians to practice even even proselytize the faith openly. Oh wow! There in Tunis, yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, it also proved very economically advantageous for Charles' own kingdom in Sicily. They secured trade rights and and all that. Uh, but ultimately, it didn't really achieve anything for the cause of Ultramar, for the cause of the the um, Latin Christians in in the Middle East. Okay. So that's all. That go. begins and ends in 1270. It begins and ends in 1270. Yeah. And that's the death of, of Louis the Ninth. That's right. Okay. So yeah. One one side note before we, we move on, which we really should just move on, but I just want to bring up <laughs> uh, dying a holy death. Mm. Um, I don't. I'm not familiar with the death of Louis the Ninth in terms of the details of it, but I am with the King Saint Ferdinand. And King Saint Ferdinand, it was known that when he went to go die, he died a incredibly holy death. That he, when he realized he was going to die, he was asked to be put in his chambers, and he was asked that all the beauties and all the really nice things that were in his room be stripped and all removed. This, he said he wanted to focus in on the important things, so he had an altar brought into his his bed chambers, and he was praying before the Blessed Sacrament and had a priest come to his chambers and, and say Mass for him, and he asked his son to come into the room. He had sent out the rest of his his kids, but he had his eldest son come in and said, you will stay and you will see how a Catholic and a king dies. And I was like, wow. And he goes on his knees, sick and dying, and makes a public confession of his life to everyone in the room. And he is weeping in tears for his sins. And his advisors, who were also in the room with him, were whispering to one another saying, none of those things are mortal sins. And yeah. it was saying that he would, he had never committed a willful mortal sin, that all his sins that he was weeping over and crying over and react, making an act of repentance were all venial sins. And he stows there and he, and he dies. And it's like, wow, like this is the way a king and a saint 
dies. That's pretty amazing. Wow. Uh, not here nor there for the Crusades, but just a really cool uh, tidbit about uh, I'm one of my favorite saints. Yeah, amazing. But onward to, uh, what are we, Eighth Crusade now? So that was the Eighth Crusade. Okay, that was, just that was the Eighth Crusade. That was Tunis. That's when he dies yeah. uh, during the Eighth Crusade. So yep. the Ninth Crusade happens how much longer after the Eighth one? So yeah, this one is in 1271. So this oh, is wow. one year later. Okay. Um, well, it's it's something, historians actually consider this an extension of the Eighth Crusade because okay. it's led by Prince Edward, who is the future King Edward I of England. Okay. He's also known as Longshanks, right, from Braveheart. So he's the bad guy in Braveheart. Um, but he's the good guy in this story. <laughs> <laughs> Bad guy in the movie, real a good guy in the in the in history. Okay, got yeah. It. Well, at least in, in, in this, this particular. Instance, okay. Um, I don't know a ton about the Scottish Wars of Independence. Okay. But, you know. Um, anyway, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> enough enough side tangents. Anyway, he was intentionally um, he was intending to aid King Louis in Tunis, um, but he didn't. Well, obviously, he he died there before he he got to Tunis. So he instead goes to Acre. Uh, when he finds that out. And so he assists the French crusaders um, in defeating the Mamluks at Tripoli, uh, the city of Tripoli, and he lifts their siege of the city, which uh, does spare the lives of thousands of refugees who had fled there because uh, Baybars, the Mamluk leader, the Mamluk sultan, was launching his own offensive through the Holy Land. He was being very successful in it. So he's he's sort of like Salad in part two, really. Um, He's he's very successful commander, but he's very brutal. He's very merciless. He doesn't have the reputation for being an honorable uh, leader and fighter like Saladin had did. He was he's much more barbaric um, in his onslaught. So they're very glad to be saved from from that. Um, despite good organization and leadership, as well as actually some allied assistance from the Mongols under Akaba oh, Khan. Yeah. So um, I've never Ed, heard this. Yeah. So Edward sent. Uh, envoys to Aqaba Khan, who is uh, the the Khan, he's the leader of the Mongols, um, as asking for assistance in fighting Baybars. And the Mongols and the Mamluks evidently hate each other. So he says, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Mongols are hammering them in the north, and then the Crusaders are fighting them in the south. And uh, they're doing pretty well. But then I think um, either Aqaba, or sorry, Abaka, either he dies or... Um, Another important uh, Mongol leader dies. Something happens, and they have to go back to Mongolia. Okay. So that doesn't last too too long um, before he before he departs. And uh, Edward, despite being a very successful commander, uh, being very uh, good fighter and and winning some victories, he realizes that his force is ultimately too small to sustain a prolonged conflict against the Mamluks. Um, and Baybars actually launches a naval invasion of Cyprus. But his fleet is shipwrecked and basically destroyed uh, on the coast of Cyprus. So that doesn't work out. So they basically, um, Baybars isn't succeeding. Edward, King Edward, or Prince Edward at this point knows that he he doesn't have much more opportunity for success. So they come to an agreement. Uh, they signed the Treaty of Caesarea, which is a 10-year peace between the Crusaders and the Latin kingdoms of Uchumer and Baybars. Um, and uh, and that that's really the end of it. Uh, so after surviving an assassination attempt, uh, someone comes into his bedchambers and tries to murder Edward. And he oh, gets wow. stabbed a couple of times, but he wrestles the guy to the <laughs> ground and kills him. So this guy's tough. This guy's <laughs> really tough. Epic. Yeah. Um, so it's, not, it's actually not clear to this day who the assassin was or who sent really? him. Really? Yeah. So huh. obviously... 
Baybars is suspected. Um, but we we still don't have proof that that was the case. It could have just been someone else. We don't know. But he he um, recovers from his injuries and he goes back to England. Um, so overall, this is a minor success. Uh, it forestalls the destruction of Outremer, allowing many refugees to survive and escape uh, from Baybar's exceptionally brutal onslaught. Uh, but ultimately, the last Latin city of Outremer, uh, the city of Acre, does fall to the Mamluks in AD 1291. So the can, uh, the result can be summarized as they kind of rescued some people, but ultimately lost. They rescued some people and they forestalled the inevitable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so now we're in 12, what is this, 12... That, that ended in 1272, 1272, and then about 20 years later, uh, Acre falls to the Mamluks. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, it's 20 years. That's pretty. That's a pretty decent yeah, amount of yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, he secured a 10-year peace okay. uh, with them. You know, That's good. Then, okay, we. so who's next? Right, so that that's really the last of the numbered crusades. Okay, good. Um, they survived it. They're, yeah, <laughs> we did. Uh, so basically, I mean, just... From there, uh, the Holy Land is lost. The Christians never regain control of it. They do have Cyprus, which is important. They use that as a st- uh, jumping-off point to try and retake uh, the Holy Land a couple of times. That never really works out for them. But it does prove a thorn in the side of the uh, the Mamluks and later the Ottomans, right? I think it is ultimately the Ottomans who retake Cyprus. Don't quote me on that. I need to look that up. But, um, yeah, Cyprus does eventually fall, but it's... it. It stays there for a while. And the Ottomans, um, they're the next big Muslim power, and they start just going west uh, across the Mediterranean, Asia Minor. Ultimately, uh, Constantinople falls to the Ottomans in the 1400s, not sure exactly when. Um, And, you know, they just keep pushing west. Uh, And the Knights Hospitaller actually are very important because they defend Rhodes, the the, uh, island of Rhodes, um, which is eventually taken by the Ottomans, and then they defend Malta in 1565, and Malta is not taken by the Ottomans. And that's that's Malta's a very strategic location. If they'd taken Malta, they would have been able to launch invasions into the Western Mediterranean. They could have invaded Rome if, oh, wow. if they had taken Malta. And the Knights of St. John defend it uh, and uh, and win in 1565. Uh, and that's that's actually after the Battle of Lepanto, okay. um, where the Holy League... Uh, which is actually a crusade called by Pius V, uh, defeats the Ottoman navy uh, at near near Lepanto and saves the day. Really saves Christendom, Western civilization. So the numbered crusades are over after the the thirteenth century, mm-hmm. and what what basically is considered what are they what is the category for the, the different battles of I guess they're not crusades but there were holy wars yeah. going on during this time, what's kind of the reason why we need to stop calling them crusades? Well, they don't really need to be stopped. I mean, they were crusades. They were crusades. They just don't have the numbers in front oh, of them okay. because of um, these weren't crusades to retake the Holy Land or anything like that. These were basically just... Were more defensive. This was just Christendom trying to survive. Okay. It wasn't about retaking the Holy Land uh, because that wasn't... that Like, that ship had sailed, basically. The Ottomans are advancing... We just need to save Europe. We just need to save Christendom from being completely destroyed at this point. So the popes did uh, call these crusades. They did get coalitions together. The Holy League was one of those coalitions to band Christians together from different places, different countries, to try and defend these uh, these strategic, um, these 
strategic points from getting taken over by the Ottomans. And those are successful overall. Um, mm -hmm. The Ottoman Empire, as we know, did not conquer Europe. Uh, Europe remains Christian. That's uh, good. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine how history would be different if uh, th we didn't have those crusades, if we didn't have the Holy Leagues uh, succeed where they did. During the 15th century, there was a attempt again to take back the Holy Land, right? Uh, there might have been. There might have been. I'm not. Been. I'm not sure. The if I'm remembering correctly, the there was when did when did we get the Holy Land kind of re relatively peaceful as it is today? Right. So it was. Um, I want to say it was under Ottoman control up until really uh, World War One. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so the. Um, that's when it, it came under the control of the British. Okay. And the British, uh, with the, you know, the Balfour Declaration, uh, they set up the, the state, the modern state of Israel. Um, and, you know, we know the rest of the history there. Right. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it was lost to the, the Muslims for all centuries. those centuries. Yeah. Wow. They realize, you know, it's interesting. I, I did a, a show with Dr. Carol Delaney, who wrote the book, the, uh, Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem. And yeah. we're, we're talking at the beginning of the show about the the intentions behind the Crusades, even among the particular Crusaders. And what Dr. Carol Delaney discovers, and she was a secularist. She, just, she was not religious in any means. In mm -hmm. fact, she was very anti-religious. And she comes out and she tells, and she was, we were talking, and she said, yeah, I mean, Columbus really and truly believed that what he was doing was for God. It's very clear from his writings. Mm -hmm. He says that he's going off to... Uh, get this gold not for riches, but he wanted to help fund crusades to take back the Holy Land, and he because he, he wanted believed. to take Constantinople, I believe. Yeah, take Constantinople. That's right. Mm -hmm. And he because it was in the it was down that time period where Constantinople was it had destroyed. already been taken by the Ottomans. Yeah, mm -hmm. a few decades before uh, before he sailed fourteen ninety two. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So he would have been alive when these things were happening. And the other thing was that uh, he also believed, according to Dr. Delaney, that he believed that the coming of Christ was imminent and they needed to take back the Holy Land so that way that when Christ comes, he did not come into a Muslim country. Mm. So that's very interesting uh, side note. But yeah, check out that episode for uh, information on that, that whole history behind Columbus and the myths around Columbus. But, uh, it was 1453 okay. when Constantinople fell to the Ottomans. Okay. So it was only a few decades before Columbus uh, sailed the ocean blue. There you 1492. Go. All right. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to cover or bring up before we close out? Because uh, we've extended past an hour and a half, but we uh, have yeah, barely I mean, scratched the surface. There is, yeah, there is, there is so much. Um, you know, there's the the, the Reconquista, there's the the Northern Crusades, there's the Albigensian Crusade, which is a very interesting subject. Um, you may know, I mean, you know a lot of things I don't know about it because you know a lot about the Dominicans. Mm -hmm. um, that that was very pivotal in their founding. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's there is a lot that could be said, but I think generally it is important to understand as as Catholics as Christians that the Crusades were not are they're not something for us to be ashamed of at all. This is something like, along with the Inquisition, there's so much black legend material out there about us, about this uh, subject. Uh, these were a series of, of just wars, of holy wars, to try and um, to help Christian brethren in the East. And ultimately, they were just to defend Christendom and save it from 
the depredations of a, of a militant civilization, to keep it very, uh, to be very blunt about it. Um, this was not something that was, uh, you know, generally offensive or, or rapacious activity. Uh, and um, the Crusades, I do believe, were, were something that were willed by God. And um, how ultimately, uh, what, for what purpose ultimately, that's, that's his to know, but we can see the effects of that in history. We can see uh, that Europe was not conquered by the Ottomans, uh, remained Christian, and um, and the Crusades were very formative in the life of the Church, in the lives of many saints. And uh, I think it's just something that we as Christians need to know a bit more about, so that when uh, these these secularists or whoever um, try to make us feel uh, ashamed of our history, uh, we know that that we know that that isn't true. We know the truth about it. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us. and Thanks for uh, having me. And you're always welcome to come back. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, soapboxes, negativities, positivities, or anything in between, let me know. If you want me to bring Andrew back on, let me know on what topic. Maybe we can focus in on one particular crusade, or maybe we'll do a whole show on the Albigensian crusade, or a whole show on just on the Reconquista. Tons of different topics all surrounding this issue, and it would be a great opportunity to uh, do some research and uh, present the topic to you guys. So let me know your thoughts in the comment section below. Make sure you like, subscribe, hit the bell notification, comment down below, all those things. Even if you don't want to comment down below, just comment down below because apparently it helps with the algorithm or something like that. Uh, and share this with a friend. Share them with people who you think would be – if you've ever been sent a Deus Volt or Crusading meme, uh, you're required to now send them this um, video. So go do that. <laughs> Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Andrew, will you join me in uh, concluding with the Nave? Absolutely. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tua mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in mortis nostre. Amen. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, Patrus of the Unborn, Our Lady of the Crusades. Pray for us. And Our Lady, as terrible as an army in battle array. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen.